It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, international editor at The Economist. On today's program... Market concentration means that a handful of firms are becoming ever more powerful in the West. Might public faith in capitalism be undermined? And Shakespearean business drama, will it be all's well that ends well at Nokia? And most businesses are ramping up their holiday hiring. But where will they find the workers? Welcome to Money Talks. But first... The economist Patrick Fowles recently had a very interesting journey from New York to the University of Chicago to attend a conference on the threat posed to prosperity by monopolies. The journey began with an alarm beeping on a handset made by Apple, which has a 62% market share in America. Next came a bumpy taxi ride to the airport in New York, and I paid for that using a piece of plastic issued by one of three credit card companies in America, American Express, MasterCard and Visa, that together uh, have a 95% market share of the credit card industry. Once I was in the airport terminal, I had breakfast at one of the supersized fast food chain that dominate the industry in the US. And I checked my emails through Google, which has a 60% market share of the browser market. A mobile signal from my phone was transmitted using one of three telecoms networks that control 78% of the telecoms market. And I took the flight with one of four airlines that control 69% of passenger journeys within America's borders. Once I finally got to Chicago, I checked into a hotel called London House and I thought it was a boutique. But then I read the fine print and it turned out to be part of Hilton, which controls 12% of all the hotel rooms in America and 25% of the pipeline of new rooms being built. I booked that room on Expedia, which has a 27% share of the North American online travel market. If you take all of these companies, collectively, 17% of their shares are owned by just three enormous fund managers, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. And by the time I arrived at the conference, I already felt like America's economy might be becoming a kind of capitalist dystopia, dominated by huge firms focused on the extraction of huge profits. Well, Patrick, you seem to have emerged from this dystopia, looking, if I may say, remarkably unscathed. And is it really as as bad as you say? And is the concentration you describe so vividly, is that actually getting worse? There's a body of evidence that suggests that competition in general has ebbed in the US, the home of free market capitalism. One bit of that is concentration. So big firms seem to have gained market share and become more powerful over the last 20 years in roughly two thirds of the economy. 
And there are other bits of evidence. Profits are very high by historical standards. And the level of creative destruction in the US economy, so the death and birth of new firms, which Joseph Schumpeter, the economist, pointed out, that level of creative destruction seems to have fallen too. So the overall picture is an economy dominated by bigger companies that make higher profits and seem to be able to do so for longer. And is this exclusively a problem in American capitalism or is it worldwide? Well, one of the things we looked at was the same set of measures around the world. And in essence, nowhere else has the same collection of symptoms to the same degree that the US does. So, for example, in Europe, you do have signs of rising concentration, so big firms becoming bigger, but you don't have the same thing of extraordinarily high profits and and enormous companies, particularly in the tech industry. So America really is the home of this problem. And one way of measuring that is to look at the pool of abnormally high profits made around the world, so profits above and beyond what you'd normally expect. And well over half of that pool of profits is in the US. So America's where this problem really exists. But if you like, is there evidence of the other side of that equation? Is there evidence that consumers are suffering from this concentration? A good way of thinking about it is to split it into two categories. So there's the tech industry where you have huge profits, but also quite inventive, dynamic companies who are doing unusual things and and innovating. And there it's a a difficult trade-off, right? We quite like the devices, the innovations they create, even if we might resent the power the companies have. But the other set of issues America has is a bit more disturbing, really. And it's in traditional industries, credit cards, airlines, telecoms pharmaceutical distribution, where bog standard products are being sold by companies that make enormous profits. And that is probably a sign that consumers are being ripped off. Looking at the tech side of it to begin with, isn't there a sense in which all this is inevitable, that the network effects of online businesses are such that there's bound to be increased concentration? People just like businesses that can have more reach. Yes, exactly. And and that in turn poses an interesting question, were governments or regulators to try and intervene? Because one option would be to break up the companies. And yet, that would probably not be what consumers want. Do, do people really want a social network that's smashed into 40 different pieces or a, a search engine which is fragmented into lots of different components and therefore is less efficient? So part of the trick, if there is going to be a regulatory response, is trying to find a compromise that gets the benefits of these network effects while making some of the antisocial aspects of them less pernicious. And how can that be done, not just in tech, but in industries generally? Do you have a a program for improving competition? Yeah. So again, if you looked across the board in those traditional industries like airlines or telecoms and so on, it's not that complicated. Around the world, there's a variety of ways to try and ensure there's more competition. So for example, for airlines, it's making sure more slots are available to new upstart airlines that compete prices lower. Or in telecoms, it's making sure spectrum is available to smaller companies who hopefully compete and bring prices down. So in that area, it's more a question of the US just not really following some of the obvious policy measures that have have happened elsewhere in the world. In tech, it's obviously very experimental. But the line we at The Economist have been pushing for a while is to try and empower individual users. The idea is to allow people to own their own data 
and control their own data and hopefully have a bit more, first of all, control over what happens to it, but secondly, perhaps be able to sell it at a price and, and get the profit from it rather than giving away their data for free with all the benefits accruing to one company. Patrick, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Patrick Fowles, author of a special report on competition in this week's Economist, which is highly recommended by Money Talks. What caused Nokia, once a titan of the mobile phone industry, to tumble from its position? It once accounted for about 4% of Finland's economy and over 20% of its exports. But it's been driven out of the cell phone business it dominated and forced to find a new path and a different niche. To talk about what happened to it, I'm joined by Philip Coggan, our Bartleby columnist. Hello, Phil. Hello, Simon. You described this in your column this week in Shakespearean terms. How so? Why is it so dramatic? As you say, it's hubris and nemesis, really. It dominated the market in 2008 when the author of a new book about the company, the chairman of the company, Risto Silasma, joined as a non-executive director. But the year before he joined, Apple had launched its iPhone. Nokia thought, there's nothing to worry about. This is a very expensive phone. It'll only have a small niche in the market. But it quickly became apparent that both Apple and the iPhone and the phones that used the other operating system, Android, were taking market share. And he noticed, being a software guru, that the problem was the operating system Symbian of Nokia was very cumbersome to use uh, and left customers dissatisfied. So it's not quite the way I'd understood it or the way I'd seen it before was that basically it just discounted the smartphone altogether. I remember going to visit a Nokia factory at the height of their glory, which had just opened in Chennai in India, when they seemed set to dominate this market because everybody was buying these very cheap, simple old phones. But they did have a smartphone. It just didn't operate as well. Exactly. They had phones that could receive and send emails, play music, listen to the radio, had a map system. It was a camera. It could take videos, all those things, but it just didn't operate as smoothly as the iPhone. And because of that, people didn't want to write apps for it. And so once it started to lose market share, then the difficulty was that it was a sort of vicious circle because without the apps, people didn't want to buy the phones. And without people buying the phones, people didn't want to write the apps. And so the this uh, guy, Mr. Silasma, wrote a memo to the chairman saying, this is our problem. We need to think about switching operating systems, maybe to Android. Completely ignored. He wrote to the chief executive, ignored. The rest of the board ignored. So it's an interesting tale of how as a non-executive director, you may, you may even see what the problem is, but you don't have much power and you're ignored. And the guy who's in charge, Mr. Yoma Olila, he'd been in charge through all the glory years as chief executive. And you get this problem of creative disruption where somebody comes in from the outside and you don't see the difficulties approaching. I suppose since he wrote the book, it's almost inevitable that Mr. Silasma would place the blame elsewhere. I mean, how does the rest of the company see it? Does he still get, get off scot-free in, in their estimation? Well, it's quite a different company now. So what happened was they teamed up with Microsoft, created a Lumia phone that didn't work, though, you know, got good reviews. So they sold off the mobile phone business. And it, what they ended up doing was buying out a joint venture with Siemens, buying Alcatel-Lucent, which was an, another big company that declined. And now they offer this kind of end-to-end -end networking for the big uh, mobile phone companies. So they, they do all the cables and routers and software and things that bring the service to you. And so the old company has disappeared. The company is in Mr. Silasma's image now. So I suppose they're probably fairly supportive. Looking to its future, 
there's no way back into the cell phone business for it, right? How does its future look in this network business? The future is, well, that's dominated by three companies. So the big hope is the 5G idea will come through. There'll be a lot of extra spending on that, and it'll have a very good position there. It's profitable. It's much smaller company than it was before, but there's, you know, there's at least a viable existence for it. Whereas being the, you know, the third most adopted type of mobile phone network, it just was never going to work. It was just squeezed out by the Androids and by Apple. Phil, thank you very much. That's Philip Coggan, our Bartleby columnist with a tale of hubris in business. Thank you. Don't forget, if you want to read more on any of our stories, subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. Finally, you will probably not like my reminding you, but it's just 42 days until Christmas. Most businesses will be looking forward to hiring more staff, taking on holiday workers to tide them over the busy time. Some are also looking at technology as a way of dealing with the seasonal spike. To discuss this, I'm joined by Maria Vilcek, who writes about finance for The Economist. Hello, Maria. Hello, Simon. Now, I I hope I'm not dashing too many illusions here among our our listeners when I say that one important job that obviously needs to be filled at Christmas is Santa impersonation. But what other seasonal jobs are there? No, that's right. If you have a lush beard, then you are in high demand in the labour market this season. The big hires during the holiday season are really logistics and transport, where more packages are being sent around. And also with the rise of e-commerce, there's, there's high demand for their services. And the other sector where there's a lot of hiring is retail. And that's uh, because there are more customers shuffling around shops. So you need people to gift wrap, to stock the shelves and to ho, ho, ho in the foyer. And what sort of boost above normal business are retailers expecting? Well, usually in the last two months of the year in the US, retailers see about 20 to 40 percent of their annual sales. This year, they're expecting a larger rise than in recent years. It's supposed to go up by 4.8 percent relative to last Christmas. Right. And you mentioned the tight labor market. I suppose that affects them in two ways. More people have money in their pocket and it's harder to find seasonal workers. What are they going to do about that? That's right. This year, we actually have the tightest labor market in the US in almost five decades, which means that more people are working. So there's more disposable income. And that means they're buying more. But the flip side of the coin is also that it's much harder to hire them. And actually, over the summer in the US, there was a million more unfilled positions than people looking for work. So how are businesses dealing with this? Well, some of them started hiring for Christmas very early. So Coles, a retailer, started hiring in June already. Others are like UPS are having big job fairs all around the US where you can take a, a driving test and have your interview straight away on the spot. Companies like Amazon are offering no CV, no interview policies just to, to win it with expediency. But also several of these retailers have timed their pay rises very well with the holiday season. So as of November 1st, Amazon amid much fanfare raised its uh, wages to $15. And that's been attracting a lot of attention amongst potential workers. And I mentioned in the queue technology, everybody's talking about robots, about AI taking over jobs from normal people. Is that happening in this market as well? 
Yes, it is. Actually, since 2014, Amazon has been using robots in its warehouses. And this year, it's going against the trend of retailers hiring more workers because it's actually hiring 20,000 fewer workers. And many people think that's because it's progressively using automation to deal with the seasonal spikes in demand for labor. Are we looking at a a decline of this seasonal job market? Is, Is the trend for automation to do away with it in the long run? It's hard to tell as of yet, but if more retailers adopt the Amazon model, then the institution of holiday work could be waning. And we've already seen this happening with summer jobs in the US and now potentially also with winter jobs, which have oftentimes been a way for locals to get one foot into the, back into the labor market. That could also be going away. So that would be a shame. And indeed, what are students going to do? I don't know what I would have done over Christmas if I didn't have the post to work for. Well, as students get older, maybe they should start growing beards. Maria, thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you very much. That was Maria Vilcek, who writes for the Commons Finance section. And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. And don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Simon Long in London. This is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.